Here he comes, live, live and well. <laughs> My dear brother, it's good to have you with us for part two. And uh, I, I forgot the exact title of this, so I'm bumbling around, and I, I didn't have it on my, on my paperwork. So I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to let you introduce part two of this series. And uh, I'm turning it over to you because we wanted to maximize the time that you have available for this. And uh, also at the end of it, any Q&A that you might invite or have time <coughs> for, and then we're going to receive communion together here locally. Sounds great. First of all, thank you all for having me here once again. Um, it's a pleasure to share with you. I hope last week provoked some uh, thoughts. You know, if you didn't get to hear last week's diving into this week, I, I hope it's engineered in such a way that it would still uh, make sense, but uh, definitely recommend going back and seeing part one. Um, I'm gonna share my screen with you right now and I'll share with you the title. Great, so there's my screen. And let me get over here. Let's make sure everything changes the way it's supposed to. Hopefully you can see that just fine. We're calling this Seeing Beyond Your Religion. This is part two, Grasping Divine Reality Beyond the Biblical Worldview. Um, let's have a word of prayer and we'll just dive in and do a little recap and go from there. Father, in Jesus' name, we are so thankful that you are the Father that stands filled with compassion, that the second we, like prodigal sons, turn toward you, you run to us, throw your arms around us, and welcome us into the celebration of your home. Father, I thank you that we have ears to hear, hearts to receive, eyes to see, and minds to perceive. In Jesus' name, God, I thank you. We are already seated in, seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And because of that, we can receive these divine truths that you are sharing with us. And Lord, I pray it's not just about what I say, but what resonates within the inner man of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Last week, we spent some time discussing seeing beyond our religiousness and seeing people as people, not as theological doctrine, really. Yet the reason many times we see people in relationship to our religious doctrine is because of our approach to God. Rather than realizing God's approach to us, it became a bit clearer through using three pivotal examples. If you remember, one was the man who was born blind. Then we had... Uh, well, first of all, the man who was born blind and his encounter with uh, him, we found that he didn't just see some sin that created blindness. He saw a person in a situation, didn't judge the situation, but rather came to work the works of God. So where Christ's encounter with people was completely different, when, which what we would could call so-called biblical approach or what the Pharisees, who like many of us, are more concerned about what we understand to be scripturally correct than spiritually resembling our Heavenly Father. So let's let's reiterate here um, some things that we said in the last session. Quote, 
In the same way that Solomon said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I built, which is 1 Kings 8.27. Now, if you consider, I think most of us Christians get that. We say, okay, God doesn't live in buildings, you know, he's in us, etc. But do we also grasp the Apostle John's words here? He said, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one would, one by one, I would suppose even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's in John 21, 25. That's the final verse of John. Let me say it one more time. He says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen, he says. John, again, 21, 25. In other words, we're quick to say we, we cannot, God cannot dwell in a tent or a building made of brick or cement, and we herald, we're the church. Well, let's include the words of the Apostle John in this way too now. God in Christ cannot can be contained in a book either. Even though this Bible, which is a library of 66 books, telling us aspects of who God is, and more importantly, when we look into the New Testament, who Christ has revealed to us, still can't contain him. He can't be contained in buildings. He can't be contained in a book. So today we're going to look at both the contrast of being spiritually correct and yet being, excuse me, let me say that again. Today we're going to look at both the contrast of being scripturally correct and yet being spiritually void. Or to say it another way, emanating Christ beyond the limits of our egoistic tree of the knowledge of good and evil view of the Bible. So let's start with two in our um two what i would call in your face moments when jesus encountered two more people uh, in this case both who were women and what any proper biblical scholar of the day would have had a serious problem with and yet god clearly didn't have a problem at all now if you remember last week again we did the man who was born blind we did the Ethiopian on the road where Philip, the what we then call Philip the Evangelist, Philip meets. And then, of course, we met Cornelius when Peter meet, met him. And in all three of these cases, we found the Holy Spirit and Jesus usurping what we would call Old Testament verses that we would say that's what the word of God says, and all of a sudden Jesus brings to us something completely different. So now the concept of faith in Jesus in certain aspects can be contrary to what we think the Bible says. And here we see it again, right in our face. Watch this. In this segment of John's gospel, is the first encounter with a so-called outcast or sinner. So let's read John 4, 7 through 23, and I'll explain the picture in a minute. It says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. 
the Samaritan said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who, it, who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and, would he, and, we, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, where then do you get that living water? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, before we continue, I just want to draw some points here. This is Jesus in, in the Gospels of John. This is his first encounter with what we would call a serious sinner. She's just not a breaker of one of the minor or extended 613 commandments, but one of the big ten. Remember, that's the ones written on the tablets of stone on Mount Sinai by Moses. This is none other than the story of the woman at the well. The reason for the picture, now let's focus on that as we continue with the scripture, but the reason for the picture of Demi Moore is from the movie which was adapted from the book written in 1850, The Scarlet Letter. It's based on what's called historical fiction. Uh, which means events like this happened historically, but we're telling the story of such events using fictional characters. So in other words, it's a true story, but as they used to say in the old film, uh, the old TV show back in the black and white days, Dragnet, we've changed the names to protect the innocent. Now, consider, it takes place, did I just date myself? And I, I'm sure Jeff knew what I was talking about, so that's how old he is. I'm just saying. Okay, never mind. It takes place in Boston, Massachusetts in, in the 1640s. Hester Prime is her name. Similar to the woman at the well, she's an adulteress. That's what we're about to find out with the woman at the well. She's an adulteress. And she is sentenced by Christian authorities to stand on a scaffolding for three hours to be exposed to public shaming and then to wear a scarlet letter A for adulteress for the rest of her life. So everyone would know what kind of sinner she was. Mind you, this is the same state within 50 years who would then have the famed witch trials. Just to give you some perspective, the town where the witch hunts occurred had a population of 600 people, give or take a few. In some cases, the area we know as Salem encompassed even more Terry and had a population of approximately 2,000. Now, this is the point I want to get at. Think of this. In the name of the Christian God, Jesus, in Salem, they rounded up and accused two hundred people of witchcraft that's 10 percent of the broader population and one-third of the population where this occurred one-third of the entire population was rounded up with the accusation of witchcraft that's crazy most who were found guilty were publicly hung and in a few cases some who wouldn't confess their sin, which, by the way, I don't know why you would, because it was punishable by death. They were sent to the press 
I don't know if you know what that is. The press is where they lay you on a wooden slab and begin to put heavy rocks on that slab on top. They put another slab on top of you and they put heavy rocks on that that will kill you from the weight. So basically, if you don't confess what we want you to confess, we're going to kill you. And if you do confess, we're going to kill you all in the name of Jesus. Today, we don't wear scarlet letters, but we do brand people as sinners in different ways and make them known. Nonetheless, regardless of how we do this now in our time, let's see how Jesus handles such situations with divine truth. Again, in our last lesson uh, with the disciples asking if the man was born blind and who was it that caused the sin, either he, the one, the, he committed in a previous life or was it his parents, Jesus was clear. He said, neither, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Rather, we must work the works of God. Why, is, why that statement? Because the disciples assumed, based on the Old Testament, well, and, and for, that, for them, consider this, it wasn't what we would call based on the Old Testament. They would be interpreting it as the oracles of God, right? The, the, the Tanakh, the, the, which is Torah, the Navaim, which is uh, the, the prophetic books, and then the Katuvim, which is the poetic books. Put that all together, it's what we call the Old Testament. But it wasn't old to them, that was their word. But Jesus was clear. What you're imposing into the situation as the works of God, because after all, if a man is born blind based on Deuteronomy and Leviticus and some of these other script, uh, verses, surely he was born blind because there was a curse on him because of some disobedience or breaking of a commandment or something that happened to him or his parents did. But Jesus was clear. What you're imposing into the situation as the works of God isn't. We must work the works of God which is to neither accuse him or his parents and bring life-giving healing to him and the situation. Jesus basically said, I don't have eyes that see sin. I have eyes that see a human being in my likeness that needs to know how wonderful and valuable he is. This passage about the woman at the well is no different. Jesus asks for a drink, to begin a conversation about how he could bring true spiritual life to her. Yet the woman asks, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. Again, it's one of those moments where we could have a wrong question that can't produce a right answer. Now, understand, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, but just we say a lot of times, um, there's no wrong questions, ask what you want. And I totally agree with that. Except when a, what, a, what I would deem as a wrong question, if you want to call it that way, is what the intention is behind it. What is it coming from? How many times the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus with their questions? They weren't asking for enlightenment. They were asking for, uh, uh, for an opportunity to catch him and discredit him. Some other cases, we come with questions because our religious veil, that's, I mean, we just went through this this week. I'm, I don't know if I told you guys, uh, I'm in good company now. Um, uh, a friend of um, mine in England was on Facebook, was interacting with another Christian person who decided to accuse me and Francois of being Francois de Troyes of the Mirror Bible false teachers. And I was in the same fran uh, sentence as Francois, so I, I guess I've arrived. Um, 
case in point is, is while there's really no, no wrong question, it's when this person was re responding, and many times we see this even from the disciples, it's the assumption I already know the answer. So now I'm posing the question to affirm what I believe as opposed to maybe learn something new and fresh. And those are hard to get around sometimes because when a person assumes they're right and enters into, the, enter into a, a discussion or even an argument, it's hard to prove to somebody um, their point of view may need a, a, a different perspective than uh, they already have when they assume in the, in the discussion they are correct, which is why I, I think it's highly important anything we do in scripture, anything we do in this pursuit begins with a humble heart. We'll get to that. So Jesus tried then to refocus the woman and he actually says, and I have almost highlighted there, but it's this. If you go back to verse 10 on the screen, if you knew the gift of God and who it, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. So now he's saying, okay, we got to change the context of your thinking. Honestly, if you understood some real truths, you would have asked. So here's the problem. She didn't know who was asking her for a drink because despite all the knowledge of scripture, where you're supposed to worship, she seemed to know all, know all these things, knowing the 613 commandments, if she knew that much, the temple location, even the priesthood, she didn't know the gift of God. Again, we'll come back to that too. Next screen here. He picks up by saying to her, verse 15, the woman said, excuse me, the woman said, sir, give me this water and I will not be thirsty. He said, now here it comes, go call your husband and come here. And the woman said, I have no husband. Jesus said, you've correctly said, for you have had five husbands and the one with whom you now have is not your husband, for you have said truly. The woman said to him, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worship, very good, <laughs> right? The woman said to him, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worship in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place of worship. Jesus said, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship. The hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Jesus presents to her the gift of God in light of exposing that he knew of her situation intimately. Keep in mind, she was a Samaritan, and the Jews consider Samaritans a lesser race, a, a lesser group of people. Then he adds, he said, go, go uh, call your husband, and at least she partially, she's partially honest. I have no husband. He replies with not only you unmarried, but you should have five scarlet letters now, right? No, he didn't say that. But you get the point, right? Not only you're unmarried, if we were in, in Massachusetts, you, you should have five scarlet letters now. And the man that you're now with isn't even your husband. So let's make it sick. You should have six scarlet letters right now. 
keep all that in the back of your mind for a moment. Now, remember, from last week, we pointed out how when Jesus saw the man born blind, he used the words Eden Anthropon, which means he saw a human being. He saw a person where the disciples, they didn't use that phrase when they said, um, who sinned? This man. They, the phrase is tis harmaitin hutos. Who sinned? That one or his parents? Big difference in how they saw and in, in the perspective between Christ's perspective and the religious ex, uh, uh, expectation of somebody. What Jesus saw and what the religious disciples saw were two different things. In the same way, Jesus sees a woman here who's the image and likeness of God, not a six-time adulteress. Can you imagine what he must have thought then, 1,600 years later, of women having to wear scarlet letters, getting a confession out of supposed witches through pressing all in his name? Still, the woman at the well asks a question that is a bit skewed here. Which mountain do we worship on? What? Well, this woman is in effect caught in adultery six times. The religious serpentine programming is still going on here. Maybe it was her way of deflecting her shameful, immoral situation in the culture of the day. Who knows? But finally, Jesus refocuses the entire situation. Worshiping here or there is irrelevant, no different than who sinned, this man or his parents. It's all beside the point in God's kingdom. In the end, the woman drops her water pot, knowing that God knew of her situation. And mind you, he didn't condemn her, didn't even say anything about it. He was just aware. So she runs into the city as an emissary of Jesus and tells the men of that city about him. And they follow her to the well to listen to Jesus' message. Mind you. She had six husbands. According to Genesis 126 through 31, six is also the number of mankind. When Jesus told the dis disciples to fill water pots with water earlier in John, he turned to them, he, remember the ones he, he turned the water into wine? Six water pots again. Now, you know me when it comes to Hebraic stuff and uh, block logic thinking, which the New Testament was still written by that, that mindset. The fact that the number six appears here more than once and both related to water pots, relationally speaking, you have six husbands, you have six water pots, one being turned, the water being turned into wine. It's interesting, the meaning of this. And, and I didn't share this when, at Oasis, but I want to share this with you. In 1 Kings 18.33, the word water pots in Hebrew is kadim mayim, or mayim, uh, kadim mayim, which means vessel of chaos. She dropped her vessel of chaos, and in similar manner, Jesus turned the six mankind vessels of chaos into the wine of the Spirit. So in, in, in John 4, we see Jesus taking, if you will, the kadim, the, the, the vessel filled with mayhem, water, or chaos. And he transforms it into the wine of the spirit where folks celebrate at the wedding. 
in this situation, she may have had, my wife said this years ago, I love it, never been able to improve on it. She said, she may have had six men, but Jesus, the seventh, touched her like the other six never could. I think that's really powerful. So she drops her water pot, if you will, of chaos of all this, and, and goes into the city and shares with, interestingly enough, men. She may have been well-known and had a voice as a result of all this. And they respond and come to Christ, and they hear his message, and they're astounded by it. Which brings us to this point. I think it's a good time to, to pause and consider something. Jesus didn't tell the woman, you're right, I'm a prophet. You're living in sin. He didn't tell the woman, wait, before you go running off and preaching about me to others, get your life right. Repent of being an adulteress five times over and either marry the, the sixth guy you're living with now or have him move out until you do. None of the above. Rather, it was all about if you knew the gift of God. You would know who's speaking to you. And what's more important than all the religious, scripturally accurate, legalistic stuff is the eternal drink of the wonderful, everlasting life full of grace and truth the I Am wants to give you. Now here's a thought for present day. While people are talking about why people are leaving churches or some agenda that's trying to stop Christianity and so on, let's not even get into that political thing. Maybe Jesus gives us the best answer to a suggested redirected question. So before I suggest that question, let me also suggest this. Many today are giving their version of right answers and prophesying such. And many are saying amen. However, again, a right answer to a wrong question isn't a right answer. It just sounds like it. Whatever versions of the scarlet letter we are imposing on so-called sinners today isn't the right answer. Jesus would refocus the question to, what would cause people to come to me? After all, people leaving isn't the issue. For that matter, Jesus clearly would have left as well. I just reminded of an old Wesley tale. I don't know how true it is, but I think, I don't know if it was John or Charles Wesley that was trying to get into his church. And um, he had preached something or something like that. And they said, you know, don't come back. This is crazy. So he was out in the cemetery area around the church, because back in those days, if you recall, the cemeteries many times were around the churches as part of the church uh, setting. And he was crying by a tombstone. And he said he heard the voice of the Lord say, what are you crying for? And he said, Lord, they won't let me into your church to let me share your good news. And Jesus said, don't feel so bad. They're not letting me in there either. <laughs> Actually, I think he would have no part in scarlet letters, public or private shaming, not to mention some kind of death penalty for unconfessed sin. The question Jesus is asking is, 
what would cause them to come and stay? Now, I hate to say it, in some cases, I'm even guilty years ago of this. One of the things that we would do to cause them to come and stay was impose fear on them that if they would have left, something horrible would have happened. That's not a good intention. Clearly, the first response is based on what we studied in the last lesson. Get the sin issue out of the equation. Which in one respect, regardless where you sit on how you understand what the cross and resurrection is, even if you're a penal substitution guy, I'm not. I don't believe the New Testament is either, but that's another story. But even if you believe that Jesus absorbed all the wrath of God on the, on the cross for sinful humanity, then why proceed further to condemn humanity with wrath if Jesus received it all? Again, get the sin issue out of the equation. Second, a person's lifestyle, biblically correct or not, is irrelevant. Whether they are married five times and living with someone or not, or pick some other heinous sin that you want to pull out of the 613 commandments. Rather, just give them the wellspring of life and let that do what it does. Or do we just trust God to do what only God can do? I mean, how many times we just want to help God a little bit more? I remember years ago in Bible college, didn't get it till many years later, uh, the dean of the school would say this. He said, for many years, I needed to help people get right with God so God can love them. Until finally God stopped me and said, you love them. I'll take care of what's right or wrong here. Made a point. So whether they're correct in their legalistic situation from a religious point of view or not, it's extraneous at best. Understand the wellspring of life isn't trying to correct a person's life from sin to sainthood. Pause with that one a minute. Rather, it's simply offering them the fullness of their divine identity. There's a big difference from grasping the revelation of who we are to simply doing right things. In some cases, because you know who you are, may even seem contrary to those who think they know what is right. I think that's what we saw happen in the three examples last week, especially with the Ethiopian eunuch who, was, who would not even be allowed into the presence of God, according to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And yet we see Philip saying, if you believe, though, in the message of Jesus, that's all irrelevant. Come into the presence of God now. Be baptized. Now, some of us may have just added to the point, well, you know, by knowing who she is, getting her identity, she'll correct her sinful, adulterous living, right? After all, that's the objective, to stop sinning, right? Once again, wrong question, leading to a wrong answer. That even seems right. It's not going to get us to where we need to go. Actually, in my view, such a question, because I've used to say all that stuff. I mean, I'm no different than anybody else. Uh, but I'm adding something to the narrative that's not in the mind of God. And I'm going to show you what I mean by what that exactly is. Adding something to the narrative that isn't God, 
Sounds great. I mean, so believable. Sounds great. But it's adding something that changes the context of what God is trying to communicate. I want you to take a look at this next slide. On the left here, that picture isn't a movie like the one with Demi Moore, but it's an actual stoning of a woman in the Middle East for a sinful act, most likely adultery. That's real. So moving from the movie and some of the hypotheticals, let's move into the real. Now, just because, again, I, I am convinced more than ever, uh, especially in our culture today, quote, our Christian culture, actually the culture of Christendom. I don't like to use the word Christian because I, I would like to believe uh, the Christian is one who is in hot pursuit of God, willing to let go of anything and everything that would hinder that. But Christendom is more of an empire-based um, belief system, like in Rome after Constantine. We may not throw stones physically at adulterers or adulteresses, but in certain ways we do it in, in some of the more, more vile ways with our words and how we put things together around such people and based on our beliefs, irrespective of what the Christ tells us. At dawn... John 8, 2 through 11. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law of Moses. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? <laughs> you going to contract the word, con contradict the word of God, Jesus? Or is actually the word of God now going to contradict their belief system? They were using this question to trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, and the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. Or as the King James says, now go and sin no more. Now you probably notice from the colors here, neither do I condemn you is in yellow. And I don't know how what the screen looks like there. I assume it's the, the colors are similar. And then in that cyan coloring, or cayenne, depending upon how you pronounce it, it's go and leave your life of sin. And then I have a lines through and leave your life of sin. 
Now, before I explain why, I want to say this. I've often thought, because this happens a few chapters after the John 4 event with the woman who was an adulteress times six. She goes into the city of Samaria. All these people come and hear the message of Jesus. I've often thought, just just as John Master thought, I can't prove this in some historical or some rabbinical teaching somewhere, but I've often thought this woman being brought before Jesus, caught in the act as possibly being the woman at the well just a few chapters later here. The reason why I say that, and it doesn't have to be, but just connect the dots for a second. First of all, I know when we hear the phrase caught in the act of adultery, we think, excuse the language, but a man on top doing his thing, or she's on top doing the thing, and the Pharisees burst into the house and, ha ha, caught you, you know? But actually, in Jewish thinking, the very fact that she was living with somebody that was no longer her husband from a, from a previous relationship, or she was in a situation where um, she was uh, in a, quote, fornicative, by our definition, situation, that is the act. In other words, she could have just woken up in the morning and, and be cooking breakfast or woken up in the morning and, and putting out laundry. She's caught in the act of adultery because she's actively living with someone who's no longer her husband. Just to be clear. So I've often wondered that because if Jesus made such an impact in Samaria and the news traveled, which we do know it did, was that could they have possibly brought that same woman, thrown her before his feet to discredit what just happened? To discredit Jesus, his message, because he's friends with an adulterer, and now they're pulling, quote, the word of God out to compare it? What are you going to say about this, Jesus? And of course, only as Jesus can, he redirects the question. But my point, my point is, is how many times we do that too, when some, somebody broken, maybe in our fellowship, reaches out and touches somebody, something happens in a positive way as a result, but then that broken person who's not totally healed yet or whatever that is, or maybe they're in a situation that we don't agree with, all of a sudden, that becomes a discredit to all the good things they've done. How many ministers have been so-called sat down for bad behavior or because of some in, inappropriate thing and or removed from ministry? When and, and I'm not saying there are not certain things that happens we don't need to address. What I am saying is we then, because of our right and wrong, good and evil serpentine knowledge that we have, we then discredit everything they've done rather than value everything they've done and see how valuable that person is and walk with them through whatever journey they need to so they can re be restored, for lack of a better word. I even don't like the word restore because if those words, I'm getting too far off topic, but some of those words, some of these things, these ideologies that we've used are, are broken in themselves. That's for another time. I guess what I wanted to ultimately say is that segment here, even if this woman is not the woman at the well, 
but a woman caught in the act of adultery. Jesus' response is absolute no condemnation. Now, going to the cyan or cayenne-colored segment, go now and leave your life of sin. This is the thing I want to point out to you, which could maybe challenge some of our thinking about the Bible. Here's a, a, a true note. This is partially from the Barnes commentary and another one that I put together for the sake of the, the lecture. The trans, Bible translator Erasmus, who did the, did the Texas Receptus, and I don't really care for the Texas Receptus, but Erasmus, Calvin, not a fan of Calvin either, Beza, Grotius, Wettstein, Titman, Knapp, and the Codus Syntaticus, the Alexandrian Codex, Codus Vaticanus, and the Codex Aphrami Rescriptus, if I said that right, and there are others. I just stopped after that. All point to the fact that this text was added. The phrase, and leave your life of sin, was added. Many point to Bishop Papias of Hariopolis, a contemporary of Polycarp, as the one who added it to the gospel. As a matter of fact, if you do further study, you, want to, you like that kind of thing, you'll find that everything from right around the middle toward the end of John chapter 7 all the way in through to here most likely has been, I will we'll just say, uh, changed uh, or added. But in this case, we know that that was added by Papias of Hariopolis, or all things are pointing to him. But one thing, all these theologians, some of which don't even agree with each other on penal substitution and all that sort of stuff, but they all agree that segment was added. Why? Because like the question I was posing before, well, well if she, you know, if she knew her identity, she'd probably get her life right and stop sinning with you know, the guy she's living with. So well, the point is, is that we're adding something now to, to it. If you think about it, let me go back to verse 10 and reread it the way it was originally written. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now. And that's where it ends. Because the second you add and leave your life of sin, it changes the picture. It's almost like saying, or in the King James Version, go and sin no more. It seems to imply, I'm going to let you off the hook this time. But if I catch you again, it totally changes the nature of God in this, uh, this, this element here. Now, because of this very thing, the Apostle Paul warned us in his epistle to the Galatians, not doing Galatians as a teaching, but I'm, I'm sure some of you are familiar with it, and in Acts 20, 29, which refers to those who would creep in and pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. He actually called them wolves. Now, whether that's done intentionally or with a misguided desire to, quote, make things right, it doesn't matter. Like I said regarding the woman at the well, the wellspring of life isn't trying to correct a person's life from sin to sainthood. Rather, it's simply trying to give them the fullness of their divine identity. Now, if we add, and that will correct their adulterous living, we're doing no different than Papias did here. 
We miss the point of the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, we're just adding something to the narrative that's not in the mind of God, distorting the nature of God, just like the good bishop of Heriopolis, well, it's, whether it's well-intended or not. That's hard for us to grasp, but let me put it this way. We can probably agree in a, in a society, there are certain behaviors and things that we probably shouldn't do. Killing would be a good good example. I noticed like on your uh, on your website, the Genesis website, it talks about, about violence, not being in the nature of Christ. Totally with you on that. Jesus would agree. So I'm not saying we should accept everything. What I am saying is there's a lot of stuff that is not applicable in the kingdom of God because this is the revelation of who God is and how he operates. The God, if he didn't see sin going in, then he's not seeing sin going out. If he says, I don't condemn you because I'm not seeing this as a sinful situation the way others have in the religious community, I'm just saying, I don't condemn you. Go. I love you. I'll walk with you. That's hard. But here's the other point of this. We're all in different places in our walk with God. And how many times we wind up being judgmental or critical of people because of whatever it is that we think they're struggling with or we believe should be corrected rather than in just in love, walking the journey with them. I'll tell you, I like what a friend of ours, I think I may have mentioned it before, Will Wheat says, his point is, you know, when I discovered this gospel, finally, because he first says, you know, it was because he grew up in church. He says, you know, it was the church that taught me how to hate gay people. He said, now that I've discovered this gospel of grace, two things have happened to me. I don't have to waste energy judging people, even if I don't understand. And two, I live in so much more peace because I don't have to judge. I think he's got a point. With that in mind, we do need to face this book called the Bible. At Oasis of the Valley, I said this last time, this is our mantra. How's that for a word? This is our mantra. We are a Christ-centered people using the Bible as a tool, not a Bible-centered people hoping and assuming Christ will be a result. Clearly, after 2,000 years of Christendom, we have proven when we put the Bible at the center, without a revelation of the nature of Christ in our heart, in our heart, things get ugly from stoning sinners, wearing scarlet letters, lynching, rioting, even what I call purified killing, where, you know, we, got, we need to kill somebody uh, be, as a scapegoat many times. If we kill that person, that will solve the problem in our community. Just because we don't stone sinners or have them wearing scarlet letters today, lynching, all those kinds of things, doesn't mean we don't put them into an unconscious 
sleep like in certain places in our country before we inject them with a lethal injection. Um, it's still killing. We just make it look less like killing. It's amazing how many people in Christ who thoughtless, thoughtlessly claim to be anti-abortion and yet are pro-capital punishment. Let me give you a few examples from the very Bible and in particularly the New Testament that make a point of how we have what we now call this thing called a Bible worldview when really we need a Christ-centered worldview. And I am telling you from my point of view, how's that? They are very different. You see, when you open up the pages of this incredible, yes, God-inspired book, but read them with the egoistic heart of the knowledge of good and evil, we have a very distorted, veiled picture of God with the, if you will, arc of the presence behind the veil, unaccessible. But in Christ, he tore down that veil, destroyed that temple, ended that priesthood, and even revealed, because by the time Christ did that, if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant was already stolen 300 years earlier and revealed that all we've been doing is worshiping an empty chamber. How much in Christendom some of our biblical worldviews are nothing more in the mind of God as an empty chamber. Let me show you what I mean. The difference between the focus, but it's a heart thing. Humility, humbleness of heart, willing to learn where your ego begins and ends and address it and recognize who the real you is and who the false self created by this egoistic knowledge of good and evil is, changes the picture. Here's an interesting verse. I'm going to read it. Now, just to let you know, um, part of this segment comes from Pastor Jeff in, in a book he recommended to me to, for me to read a while back. And so this was inspired by that. Um, but I thought it's applicable here. It's uh, written by uh, Brian, what's his name? I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Oh, well, I'll get it as we go. But I want you to listen to this. Notice what the Apostle Paul didn't say. Colossians 1, 12 through 15. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the light of the Holy Scriptures, through which we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Bible is the image of the invisible God, the revelation of all creation. Paul never said that, did he? Rather, he said this, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There's a priority shift here. 
How about this verse? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in the last days, he has spoken to us through the Bible, whom he appointed the authority over all things. The scriptures are the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by its powerful word. Let's be, be honest. We've approached the Bible just like that. But what does Hebrews really say? In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir over all things. And through him, he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Powerful stuff. How about this verse? John 1, 16 through 18. From the fullness of the Bible, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through both Old and New Testaments. No one has ever seen God, but the Holy Bible in its entirety has made him known. It's not what it says, does it? No, this is what it says. And actually what it says here can be kind of nerve-wracking. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. Notice it's from the fullness of his grace, not by us doing the right things, not as by knowing what scriptures that we should and shouldn't do, but by the fullness of his grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Before I continue, I want to point out the law was given through Moses. Okay, that's good. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Do you notice the, the suggestion there? What is not said but is said? You could say, for the law, void of grace and truth, was given through Moses. Or maybe even more accurately, for the law, veiling grace and truth, was given through Moses. But grace and truth came through Jesus. It's a powerful idea. That's why the Old Testament is definitely inspired. And one of the joys I have with learning and embracing Hebrew, and but more importantly, even this block logic thing uh, that's behind there, you can start to extract. As Jesus said, you know, you search the scriptures in them, you think you found life, but they are they that testify of me. Understand the way he read it, maybe is the way we should be reading. Particularly the New Testament in our case. It's the New Testament that testifying of us. We should see ourselves in the Christ, in the stories. Whatever Jesus is doing, we should see ourselves doing. That includes, if necessary, turning the other cheek. That includes embracing six times, <laughs> six time adulteresses and all kinds of other things that we may have deemed in our religious minds as unacceptable. But like Cornelius, like the Ethiopian who shouldn't be in the presence of God, and like these scriptures that we find in Leviticus about the LBGTQIA people, and they are not supposed to be. God puts it all in perspective. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God's tr 
true opinion about us hasn't changed. No one has ever seen God, verse 18, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side has made him known. That's the truth there. That's the power of the person of Jesus Christ, who is not an example for us, but actually an example of us. Remember, there's a difference. And it's, it's subtle. And I can see why we would say, it's okay, he's an example for us. I, I get it, especially if you're on this road, that, that kind of works. But up front, somebody who's an example for you is subtly showing you what you're not. The beauty of being an example of us is he's showing you who you are, irrespective of whether you think so or not. There's a difference between saying, I'm an example for you because you're not that and you need to work real hard to become like me. Or I'm an example of you. All you need to do is get rid of all that other stuff. Just lay it off because all that's in you now. The difference between the grasping divine reality is realizing you are an emanation of the I am that I am, which is far beyond a biblical worldview where I, now I have all these scriptures that now through my egoistic knowledge of good and evil, I'm going to read these and decide what's holy, what's unholy, how I'm going to read this verse, how I'm going to read that verse. And before you know it, I'm adding things like a person caught in some sinful act. And instead of me not condemning them, I would maybe do the Christian thing. Well, I love you, brother, and I'm not condemning you, but you need to give up that life of sin. I haven't presented to them who they are. I've only reinforced what I believe has put them in this situation. No different than the man who was born blind. Who sinned? That guy or his parents that he's in that situation? Interesting, they didn't even say, how can we get them out of it, get him out of the situation? They assumed he was in the situation because that's what he should be. How about this verse? Matthew 17, 5 through 8. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is the Holy Scriptures with which I'm well pleased. Obey them. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But they were touched and heard, arise, don't be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but the Bible. It's not exactly what it says, does it? How about this? Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, don't be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. I wonder if that's a message to us. I love the Bible. I'm used, I've used the Bible now for two weeks in your presence. I know your pastors do it all the time. Bible spectacular. But in the end, is it about Jesus only? Let me conclude with some of these things. The Bible, the Old Testament, is a tool. It's wonderful. It's inspired by men. It's amazing. 
The Bible is the inspired tool, but the empty tomb is the living reality. Remember Colossians, who made us competent as ministers of the New Testament, not of Scripture, but of the Spirit. For the Scripture slays, but the Spirit makes alive. How about this from the complete Jewish Bible? He has made us competent to be workers of the new covenant, the essence of which is not a written text, but the spirit. For the written text brings death, but the spirit gives life. The living reality, the living reality of the Christ in you is where it all begins. And that's where it all ends. Use the Bible as a tool. Love it and then embrace it that way. But make the sun who is an example of you, your living reality. It definitely is going to cha challenge our binary view of the world. But at the same time, we can transcend it and see something amazing and different. I think very powerful. I think the world needs to see us as emanations of God rather than our perspectives of what we think Bible verses say from our own thinking and our own egoistic point of view. And it begins with something real simple. How far are you willing to lay your life down for somebody else's journey so they can experience the living Christ within them? Thanks very much. Appreciate it. Hope this second part had another connection to the other one. Um, I, I believe that there are some good things in here, but there are things I skipped over to. There's other things like what did Jesus write on, this, on the sand and all this stuff. There's just so much. This wonderful Bible, yes, powerful tool. But remember, it's about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Pastor Jeff.